and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Jade Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Listeners, if you're a nurse, doctor, or other health professional, you have no doubt been asked multiple times by family members, friends, or neighbors to help them understand some form of health information, maybe interpreting a document they got when they went home from the hospital or something the doctor said. Maybe you helped explain lab results to your mother. Maybe the label on a medication bottle says to take it two times daily, but your brother isn't sure whether that means two doses over a 12-hour day or over 24 hours. Maybe your neighbor would rather ask you about the rash on her elbow that won't go away because she doesn't think that her doctor is going to take her seriously. These are just a few of the everyday examples of how confusing and potentially alienating the healthcare system can be. Our guest today is a medical doctor and a public health expert who has devoted her entire career to making practical and usable health information more accessible to every one of us. Dr. Lisa K. Fitzpatrick is founder and CEO of Grapevine Health. Grapevine uses storytelling, community-based support, and digital communication to improve personal and organizational health literacy. We're looking forward to a rich discussion. Dr. Fitzpatrick, welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm so happy to be here. I'm also honored that you asked me to come. Well, the pleasure is all ours, and it'll be great for our listeners to hear from you. Lisa, one of the things we've been trying to do with Turn On The Lights is to try to make healthcare a little bit more accessible, a little easier to understand, a little more available to everyone. This is something that you've been doing for a long time. So tell us a little bit about what got you into this space of trying to help people understand their health and what healthcare really is doing with them. Thank you for asking me that question. I get this question a lot because as you probably know, I've had lots of fancy jobs in healthcare including working for Medicaid as a chief medical officer and working for CDC. But I've decided to pour my talents and passion into just what you said, helping people understand health, healthcare, how the healthcare system works, how to understand their bodies. And the reason for this is because between my friends and family who are constantly texting me to clarify what they're hearing in the doctor's office or to look in their portals to help them understand the results of their image or their lab results. I've also had people in the community express to me how frustrated and in some cases demoralized they feel because they don't understand what doctors are saying to them or how to make sense of all the complicatedness of healthcare. But my origin story actually goes all the way back to 2007. I was working at CDC at the time, but I was at a community event. We were talking to people about general health issues. And after this conversation on the panel was over, a gentleman walked up to me, he was maybe a 60 year old black man. And he said, how does someone like me access someone like you on a regular basis? Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten that because I know there are millions of people like him who just need plain speak or they need some direction. So I wanted to figure out how can we demystify something so complicated? How can we break it down in plain language so it's not as intimidating and it's not making people fearful? Because whether we like it or not, one of the things that's a powerful driver of people's decision to engage in healthcare is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of feeling silly or asking dumb questions. I've heard all of these things. 
So I started Grapevine Health to address this problem and try to bring or to narrow the distance between the healthcare system and the public so people feel engaged and able to connect with the healthcare system to improve their health. Lisa, you used the word demoralized when people get confused. Can you explain more about what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, a lot of times people feel, we make people feel as if we're not supposed to use this word anymore, but this is what they say. Well, going to the doctor makes me feel stupid or my doctor makes me feel like a child because of the way she's talking to me and as if she's pointing her finger at me going, I told you to do this. Why haven't you done that? But also feeling like you're alone can also be very scary. And I think all these things together make people feel somewhat hopeless and deflated as if there's no one out there who really cares, no one who listens to them. There's no one to help them, which is ironic because there's a ton of resources available for people. We just haven't made it easy for them to learn about it and access it. You're describing something that's a little more than literacy, right? I mean, sort of the tradition here in healthcare is often that we're trying to help people understand the content. There's a literacy language, you know, that language of being able to read or understand it. But I hear you saying something quite different than that. Literacy and awareness and comprehension is part of it, but there's something else here that you're unearthing. It's connection, giving people hope, dispelling myths, something more here underlying what you're trying to do. It's more than just becoming aware of the health consequences of a decision. Is that right? Yeah, you know, there's a humanity we forget to show in medicine. And that's what you're describing. Helping people realize it. I'm a doctor. Sure, I have all this training, but I'm also a person too. And it's a true story that I struggle with some of the same things I'm trying to help other people with. Like I've been pre-diabetic. Even now, my blood pressure is like right on the cusp of being too high. So I think we have to express some humility and show people we understand. Because from their perspective, we're often barking orders at them come here, do this, sit there, go take this. And then tapping people on the wrist and saying, I've tried this so many times and you're just not listening. So they feel like we're writing them off. What's your current understanding or belief about why physicians and presumably other clinicians behave that way? Presumably they, they don't want to do harm. What's going on here? I certainly don't think it's intentional. And I have talked to healthcare providers about this. Most recently, I've talked to a few OBGYN providers because of the conversation we're having about maternal mortality and health outcomes for Black mothers, because they're hearing these conversations too. I don't think this is intentional behavior. I think people who go into healthcare do so for altruistic reasons. We want to help people, but we get caught up in a system that sets us up to fail when it comes to showing humanity in healthcare, the time pressures. Now the need for us to pay a lot more attention to documentation and what's going on with the computer. So a lot of people in the community complain about doctors not looking at them because they're too busy typing on the computer. And it's up to us to find a balance with those things, but it also creates some competing demands in clinical services when you're having to respond to the master who says, I need this documentation We need to make sure we're maximizing reimbursement. And then on the patient or community side, they don't really care about those things. They care about, are you paying attention? And are you paying attention to me? Are you listening to me? So I think 
healthcare providers need to be more mindful and put ourselves in the patient's shoes so that we remember, even though we have these competing demands administratively and bureaucratically, our first duty is to make sure the person we're taking care of sees our humanity and realizes that we are here to do no harm. So Lisa, my first encounter with your work about helping people understand was when you went out on the street with a microphone and you appeared to just stop bystanders and ask them some questions about health. Can you tell us that story a little bit? And what did you learn? What did you hear? Mm, I've learned so much. It's very humbling being on the street. And actually, Dr. Lisa on the street is a response to the gentleman's question. The man who said, how does someone like me access someone like you? Is Dr. Lisa on the street still available? It's like people can access it on YouTube. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube. But Dr. Lisa on the street has actually morphed into Grapevine Health, which is the company I'm running now. But Dr. Lisa on the street was a way to democratize myself. This notion that doctors need to break down the information we're delivering or talk in plain speak and not use words like spondylolisthesis or pulmonologist or diaphoresis. We do these things and we forget people don't understand what we're talking about. So I would go out on the street to show people, number one, doctors can be relatable, but number two, just to hear what was on people's minds and see what the response would be to creating video snippets on specific topics. Did so one day I took people who are on the street, they weren't expecting you, you didn't know them and you just caught their elbow and said, can I talk to you? <laughs> Think of it like Jay Leno jaywalking, <laughs> but only <laughs> for help. inspiration for this was Jay. <laughs> That's right. That's where I got the idea because I was so burdened by this man's question. I just kept thinking, how can I do this? How can I clone myself so that more people can have access And I saw it because I don't watch much TV, or at least I didn't then. And for some reason, I had on the TV late night and I saw him talking to people. He had a picture of, I think it was Madeline Albright or someone like that. And nobody knew who she was. And it was funny, but it was also educational. So I thought, well, maybe I can do that with help. So I found a videographer and I went out onto the National Mall with him one day. And it was a complete experiment. We had no expectations. We just said, let's see what happens. So I just stood there and when people walked by, I would ask them, I would say, I'm Dr. Lisa, I'd like to talk to you. And so people often ask me, well, how many people do you have to ask before anyone stops? In the beginning, it was maybe every fifth or sixth person might stop and talk to me, which is pretty good. But then I introduced the organ model. The organ model that demonstrates all those organs inside, your heart, your lungs, your colon, all of that. All I have to do is sit the organ model somewhere and then I just wait. The sentencing <laughs> press here, Lisa, was that you're on the National Mall in front of Congress and the Washington Monument, all the Smithsonian buildings. You're in your white coat or you're just in your normal street clothes? What, Sometimes and- I'm in my white coat, but the first few videos, I was just in regular clothes. And you're saying, I'm a physician and here's a model, an internal model of the body. And let me help you understand. The beauty of the organ model is I don't have to say anything (laughs) because, and actually, can you see it there? I know they won't be able to see it on the podcast, but if you sit that outside and stand there, almost everybody walking by will look at it. 
for our listeners right now that don't have a visual on this, we're looking at Lisa's home office, I think, and a literal model of a mannequin, basically, of a person with the internal organs on display so you can point out the lungs and the heart and the stomach and other bodily organs. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about this model is I could not find a black one. So we actually had to paint them. Wow. Because most of our work is in underserved communities where people are black and brown. And when the pandemic happened, I can no longer take my white organ model out. So I said to one of our interns, I said, we need to paint this. Hmm. And we did. So anyway, when people see the organ model, they walk over. And most of the time, what do you think the question is? What is that? (laughs) So it opens up a conversation and then I can say, oh, I'm Dr. Lisa. And I just want to see, can you name these organs? And one day a little girl came over. Kids love the organ model. Mm-hmm. And I was explaining each one. And she says, all of that's inside of me? And wow. I said, absolutely. All of this is inside of everyone or most everyone. So what were the most common misunderstandings people seem to have as you begin to open this dialogue up? The most common one is how small the stomach is and where it's located. <laughs> because if you ask someone to point to your stomach, where are they going to point? They're going to point just in a general area of their abdomen and their gut, right? So when they saw the stomach is a tiny organ relative to what they think it is, they're shocked. And then I can explain, this is why you feel full when you overeat. The stomach is a muscle and blah, blah, blah. And so it just really opens up the door to some really honest, authentic conversations. I love it. The other thing is people don't often know what the liver is. They've never heard of the gallbladder. And most people, except for the heart, don't really know what organs do. So why does it matter? It matters. Well, first of all, it matters because these organs belong to all of us. And if you're walking around with them 24 hours a day, you should know what's inside. But the other thing is, I think when you understand what organs are and how they work, it makes health a little less intimidating. And when you go and see a healthcare provider and you can say, instead of thinking, oh, well, my liver hurts, but you're pointing down to the bottom part of the left side of your body, like your liver's not over there. You can also help be a detective and help figure out what's going on with your body. So these are the reasons people need to know. But I've had people say to me, like, I don't really care. I don't need to know that. But people absolutely need to know these things. Lisa, what and, and the other thing I want to tell you is, There was a gentleman on the corner who asked me, he pointed to the lungs and he said, now these are either kidneys or lungs. Which one is it? And that was really humbling to me as well, because even though we're all breathing all day long, it's really an involuntary thing. You don't have to think about it. But I suspected people had some idea of where the lungs are located, but some people don't. Lisa, one of the videos I remember watching of you early on was of a patient that I think been recently discharged from a hospital or somewhere Mm -hmm. nearby. And you were doing something in that interaction that was very interesting. You were near a hospital at that time. So now you're not at the mall in DC, but you're near a hospital and you're maybe talking with this individual about a recent discharge. And the patient was confused, if I recall. How does this translation that you're doing, this interpretation that you're doing help someone who's trying to navigate their care? Yeah. And I think two big ways. One is, and that story makes me profoundly sad. That's exactly what happened. This woman was just discharged from the hospital and she saw we were filming. I had on my white coat 
And she hung around until we were done so that she could ask me to look at her discharge paperwork and ask her and ask, what do I do now? Because they hadn't given her a follow-up appointment and no instructions. So she didn't, she felt lost. Number one, it helps people realize there are people who care because if you get sucked into the healthcare system and all sorts of things happen when you're there, there's no one interpreting. You feel like nobody really cares. Like you're a gerbil on a wheel or you're, you're you know, something in a widget in a factory. The second thing is I got a lot of information that helps us. Number one, she was very open about sharing her health information. She was not fearful that I would take her information and do evil things with her data. She showed me her insurance card. She showed me her ID. She gave me her phone number. She allowed me to text her. And we see this very commonly. And I want people to know that all of these conversations about HIPAA as a barrier to being able to connect and engage people like these are false narratives. We need HIPAA is a law that was designed to protect privacy, but it's frequently misinterpreted. And so hospitals and clinicians tell you, you they, they can't share information when that's actually not true. Is that what you're referring to? Exactly. So the final thing I think is useful about that encounter is that it's just a reminder that nobody is hard to reach, that we need to make the effort to connect with people and get them connected to the place they need to be. We can't keep leaving people to their own devices to figure these things out because often they're not going to, and they will also be discouraged from engaging proactively way upstream before something becomes a big problem and then becomes catastrophic. So those kinds of lessons on the street, I mean, are really valuable for us because while it sounds nice that we're making videos and we're trying to engage people in their health, there are policy implications around what we find so that we can actually change the way people think about how healthcare should be delivered. So you've migrated now from Dr. Lisa on the street to Grapevine Health. Can you say mm-hmm. a few words about your vision there? What's Grapevine Health and what are you trying to get done? I'm trying to create a mechanism for people like that woman on the street to have a trusted source of health information. So what if I hadn't been on the street? Where would she go? What would she have done? Who could she have called? So I want Grapevine Health, which is similar to Dr. Lisa on the street, but now we have multiple docs who also go on the street and make content. But over time, we want this to become a national brand so that people know There are people out here who are relatable, who understand and empathize with your social condition, your health condition that can help you improve your health. Lisa, who's the consumer of this service? You know, I can imagine patients would benefit directly like the woman on the street that you're describing, but does the health system have a role in this? Insurance companies, like who would want a grapevine supporter, a translator, interpreter? Who's looking for service? Well, I definitely think the community wants a grapevine. Grapevine should actually be a public service Mm. because this issue around health literacy or really understanding health information, how to use it, what doctors are saying, that issue transcends class, race, income, you name it. Because we've seen all sorts of folks on the street who ask the same types of questions. So it's not just a black or brown issue. You're finding 
all populations have this level of confusion. And uh, yes, now but- we've made a decision to focus our efforts on underserved communities because they're often left behind because we create a lot of innovation and focus on people like us thinking that once, you know, the things we learn, those will trickle down. And then people who don't have access in the beginning can eventually benefit. And that doesn't work. So we think we need to be intentional about who we're focusing on. But yes, this problem is relevant for all communities. Even when I've been outside the United States, I've heard similar concerns and people saying, why are you doing this for Medicaid populations? Like we need this too. So, yeah. yeah. You know, Lisa, I was thinking about my mother-in-law who's dealing with a complex cancer diagnosis. And when she enters the exam room, I watch her. I've been with her. She tells all kinds of stories about her health to her doctor in an effort to impress her physician. And basically because she's fearful, I think, of the consequences of those stories not being true. So some of what you're creating could be used. I mean, I can see the relevance for almost anyone in what you're trying to create here going forward. So you also have played in the policy arena. Let's talk a bit about that. What could happen in policy? You were, I think, uh, rather senior in the Biden-Sanders transition period when now President Biden was getting ready to establish policies. What do you see is possible in, in the level of government and policy to really aid in what you're pursuing? I think you meant Biden-Harris. I'm, uh, Biden-Harris. I was on the, <laughs> the health policy committee before the election. And The reason I was selected was because of a lot of my policy background, working for the Centers for Disease Control, doing field investigations to really understand what kind of public health policy is needed to help improve people's health. Also working on the healthcare financing side, which is how do we decide what gets paid for and what the rules and regulations are around paying for healthcare. So a lot of that information has really helped And the way we approach people, even on the street, are the questions we ask them. And a good example of this is back to text messaging. So there's a lot of confusion about how doctors can interact with a person over text message. And a lot of this is related to, you've already described HIPAA, this rule about how we communicate sensitive health information. And so what we're hearing from people about what they want with their data and how they want to be in control of their data, we can take this information and put it into some sort of memo or policy brief or even pass it on to organizations like IHI to influence what's happening. Because a lot of the people who ultimately make these decisions around healthcare, they actually don't understand healthcare. And they also often don't understand community concerns. So I think there's a big opportunity for us to help influence what's happening with healthcare delivery. Lisa, is Grapevine in multiple jurisdictions now? Like where is Grapevine sourcing stories today? Is it all over or is it DC? We're based in Washington, DC, but we've been to several states. We've been to Alabama, Georgia, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Michigan. As I mentioned, we want to become a household brand, but what we're trying to find now is a way for us to digitize the data collection we do. Right now we do data collection. We talk directly to people either in groups or individually to understand what their concerns are about healthcare and how they want to receive and consume health information. But if we find a way to do that digitally, 
then we can collect a lot more information across the United States. And I think, frankly, that's really powerful for influencing policy as well. Because right now, if people say, oh, well, you're only in D.C. and Maryland. But then I can say, but we've talked to hundreds of people in 15 or 20 states. Then that really gets people's attention. What reaction are you getting from your physician and nurse colleagues? Do they welcome this or is it they feel criticized? How are people reacting to it? No, they love it because they know there's a need to provide relatable health information to especially underserved communities who may be reluctant to engage consistently in healthcare. We also have quite a few providers reaching out saying, how can I become part of Grapevine? But I've also lectured to several academic groups and their concern is we know health literacy and the need to better engage is really important. We just don't have time. So what is your recommendation for how we can do a better job at this? And I have lots of suggestions, but I would say the the primary suggestion is to treat people the way you want to be treated. It's the same thing we learned when we were little kids. So people have told me, because we asked them, how do you decide you trust your doctor? And the number one answer, do you know what it is? Well, I'm no guesses. <laughs> the number one answer is my doctor listens to me. Listens, yeah. yeah. So then I said, well, how can you tell if the doctor's listening? And the answers range from, well, they look at me, they touch me. They're not only staring at the computer, but the one I found most fascinating, and I've heard this in different variations, when the doctor is talking to me and they're moving closer to the door and they put their hand on the doorknob, <laughs> then I know I need to stop talking. <laughs> and I think these are subconscious things we do and we don't realize the signals we're sending to our patients. So it's really important, even if you only have 15 minutes to be present. And my big frustration now is the de-emphasis on the physical exam. The physical exam is still critical. I don't care how much advancement we have with artificial intelligence and diagnostics that can pick up things. You still need to interact and touch people. So I don't know how we turn the tide on this so that we reverse this course a little bit, but people notice this too. And I've even had a part of the building of trust, part of the relationship, not even, you're not saying it just that it generates information, but it actually generates relationship, the physical exam. Absolutely. And the physical exam gives you so much information. I mean, think about when someone walks into a room and climbs up on the exam table or even sits in a chair and gets up out of a chair. Think about how much information that gives you about their mobility, their strength, their nerves. And I think these are the kinds of things we also need to teach people because we need to create a demand for this kind of responsiveness in healthcare. And I think that's another goal for Grapevine. We need to activate the community because the demand is required for the health system and the powers that be to respond, to change our healthcare system to one that's more responsive to what people need. But if people don't have the information, we can't get people to speak up and advocate for this. I had this image of Dr. Lisa on the street needs to become the way we all behave in some way, which is the way you kind of open yourself up to inquiry and really want to know what people understand. That sounds to me like you're arguing that's got to be part of 
the normal exchanges in healthcare. It's a kind of listening that I think we rarely see these days, not just in the healthcare environment, but more broadly than that. As the pressures increase, it really gets pushed. We need humility, right? We have to be humble. We also have to be honest about what we don't know. And part of being on the street is listening to get new ideas or to understand, okay, wow, I didn't realize people were perceiving things in that way. So everyone can't go on the street. And I've had folks say that to me too. Well, I can't do what you do. It's like, well, there are things you can do. You can be more humanistic in the way you deliver care, be more intentional about listening. So I don't expect everyone to go on the street, but we do need more listeners. Well, how can our listeners find you, Lisa, at Grapevine? What's the best way for us to connect to your work? Well, we're on social media, but if you have a specific question, the best way is to send us either a text message or an email. The text message number is 202-702-8175 or email is info at grapevinehealthoneword.com. Info. And that's grapevine, like I heard it through the grapevine. That's right. Okay. Well, I heard it through the grapevine. Lisa, thank you. We have one last question we ask all our guests, which is about where do you rate on looking at the world today and what you experience and the experience of the people that you meet on the street? Where do you rate on the optimism to pessimism scale at this point in time for where we're going in healthcare today? Well, I need to answer that with the story. So (laughs) a health policy think tank invited me to an advisory council type meeting. And there maybe were 30 people in the room. And one of the icebreaker exercises was actually this question. And you had to submit yourself based on how you felt about the answer. And it was something very similar to this. It was how optimistic are you that we will get to, I don't know, maybe it was about equity or something about changing the healthcare system. And so if you strongly agreed, you were in this corner and the next corner was if you agreed and if you were sure, and then if you were just cynical, you were in one. And you know, I was the only person in my corner and it was cynical. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked around the room and I thought, how could this be? I'm the only person in here who's cynical about the future of healthcare. Mm. I'm still cynical because we know the drivers of healthcare. We talk about them all the time. We write about them. There's a wealth of data describing why people have worse health outcomes than someone else, right? Why are Black mothers dying at higher rates? Why are we seeing higher rates of diabetes in Black and brown communities? We've been pouring over these data forever. We know the answers are upstream, prevention. How do we give people the tools to keep themselves healthy? We don't need to keep talking about this. The health insurance companies know it. The hospitals know it. The hospitals want people in the beds. That's how they make money, right? So I'm cynical because as Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. And where is this demand going to come from? I don't know if it's going to come from healthcare providers like me. I think it has to come from the community. People have to rise up and say, enough already. I'm tired and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So that's what makes me cynical. But it's also hopeful because it's an opportunity We need to make sure people are activated, but we have to give them the tools they need to be activated and be optimistic about their own health and their community's health. Well, you're creating one of those tools at Grapevine Health. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us here on Turn on the Lights. We're so glad to have you here and look forward to what you'll produce and what Grapevine will create in the future. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. 
water hole. Well, that was exciting. And uh, I love this quote that she began with at some point, the, the thing that the gentleman said to her from the audience, how does someone like me access someone like you? And that seems to have been a driving force for Lisa to first get out onto the street to try to understand what people were feeling and now take that into this organization she's created and that has quite impressive scale. She is much the activist. Absolutely. I think she's tuned into a rather simple but crucial idea about that power comes from knowledge, that you're going to feel helpless, or she even put it as, say, Astor demoralized, mm-hmm. unless you feel you know, and especially when it's yourself and your body involved. But it is not, it's a simple thought. It's not a simple thing to do something about. Yeah. And what she's discovering, and if you haven't listened to the Dr. Lisa on the street yeah, interview. Yeah, that's a YouTube worth it, making. It is really. Google I mean, it or YouTube. It, short yeah. conversations yeah. with people. And first, the level of people's misinformation, confusion, and distress about what they know and don't know about healthcare. And then her kind of honest and humble attempt to engage in conversation that helps people begin to understand. I find it very moving. It starts really simple. It's always sort of interesting. She starts with this kind of very simple way in, you know, where are the lungs, where's the kidney, you know, how big is your stomach? And in these videos, she gets much deeper into levels of not just pure health information, but trust, fear. Why didn't I understand this? Why did my clinician treat me this way? It gets very textured and very layered very quickly from something as simple as where's the starting point, like, where are my lungs? You know, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so now I'm trying to tune into the walk in the shoes of our physician colleagues and yeah. nurses. They don't want not to communicate. The vast majority of clinicians, I still have a rather romantic view of, they actually want to help heal people. But here is a gap that Lisa's identifying and calling our attention to. And I don't know quite what to do about it. Physicians, especially and nurses today, are pressed a lot, a lot of pressure, productivity pressures, payment pressures, things that are yeah. grabbing their time. You still practice, Kedar, yeah. you must feel it. And to be asked, I guess, in some way to slow down, listen, tune in, make sure the communication is complete. It's a hard message. Yeah. How does it feel? It's a tough message. I think there's a lot of pressure on the time. I know that sentiment of putting one hand on the door as you're trying to exit a room. I've seen that before. I've been that person before as a clinician. You know, I feel that deeply. But I think there are ways of very quickly forming connection. Lisa does it in a matter of minutes on the street through a sentiment that you're on the same side of the table. You know, the creation of trust can be established actually fairly quickly and it can be eroded just as well very quickly. But I don't think it's a single encounter. When you're in a clinical relationship, it's not just one moment in time. It's a series of interactions that leads to that kind of trust over some time. I suppose my message for a clinician would be, don't try to cram it all in in one 15-minute encounter. That's not the way to think about it. It's start to ask real questions that you care about the answers to and let that be what you can accomplish during one session and then move to the next one. Yeah, it's the only way we can really get our mission done, our job done. I was reminded when I was a medical student, very first week of my medical school, I've talked about this in speeches. I had a tutor. I was assigned a tutor, Dr. Ed Frank, who was Mm -hmm. a, he actually was a surgeon, a vascular surgeon, but his job was kind of to help me understand the physical exam. Mm -hmm. And I remember the very first patient he took me to see walked into her room and she was lying in the bed and it was a patient who was about to have gallbladder surgery. And so I started following what we call the red book at the medical school, which was all the questions you're supposed to ask. And I remember Dr. Frank just stopped me. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, no, Don, when you talk to a patient, you sit down. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I've never forgotten that, that one little signal. I'm yeah. sitting, I'm here, I'm with you. Francis Frey, a researcher at the Harvard Business School, who is a trust researcher, her phrase is shoulders, eyes, and question marks. And by which she means face the patient, shoulders to the patient, and at the same level, sitting down. 
eyes, make eye contact and ask questions, not make statements, you know, ask questions that you care about the answers to. And I think that's simple practice. If you get into the habit of thinking this way, sit down, face the person, ask good questions. That's a starting point to establishing this kind of trusting relationship. I love that. Well, I think we need to interrogate the environment we're putting doctors and nurses in as to whether yeah. they really can do that, whether yeah. they have, even if it's a little bit of time, they have to have that little bit of time and the kind of psychological space to tune in. And Lisa made one point towards the end about artificial intelligence. It was brief. I do wonder a little bit about this. AI certainly coming into the clinical environment more and more. I wonder a little bit about whether artificial intelligence could reduce. I mean, there's probably risks on both sides, risks and opportunities of artificial intelligence. It's a whole other show probably, but it can reduce documentation burden perhaps, maybe make it more possible for us to spend the time connecting with people in the precious moments that we actually have in examiner. In that same very first visit, I remember Dr. Frank told me to sit down and then I started talking and I said, so Mrs. Goldberg, when did your pain start? And he put his hand on my shoulder again and he said, wait a minute, Don, do you know that Mrs. Goldberg has a brand new grandchild? <laughs> yeah. I know AI is going to remind That's right. That's the challenge. That. Right. Anyway, so uh, well, I wish Lisa well. Yeah. Lisa's got an incredible task ahead of her. One last thing to say, by the way, is that out of our many guests, not many have said that they fall on the pessimistic or cynical side yes. of the spectrum. That's the um, first one that I remember so far. Yeah. And that was striking to me because if anyone, Lisa knows the voice of the community. And for the voice of the community to be expressing cynicism, despair, pessimism, that's kind of a warning sign, a red, you know, <laughs> a glaring warning sign, I think, to all of us in healthcare that there's got to be something that we're, we, we change about yeah, the way I know you, You've been doing a lot of research lately on trust, Kater. I think maybe we should do some shows on that because that's a red flag. Well, thanks again, Don. See Thank you, Kater. The Turn on the Lights podcast is a production of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. A huge thank you to Don Berwick for hosting with me, Kate Armate. Thank you also to our IHI colleagues, Stephen Waldron and Joanne Endo, our researchers, Bob Jane and Tej Patel, and to the Outcomes Rocket team. And of course, thanks to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. Support for Turn on the Lights comes from the RX Foundation, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.